This is Jamie Marconette, Senior Director, Music Insights and Industry Relations at Luminate. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee Podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Rob Avalo, 10 predictions on music's future. From Chris Nilsson in 10th Street Entertainment, the evolving roles and responsibilities of artist management today. From Variety, what Spotify's new royalty model really means. And for music business worldwide, the MLC has paid out over $1.5 billion to songwriters to date. Ooh. Oh, 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 Jay and I were, we were just going over this. We've got so much to cover today. We are glad you're here for episode 170. It's a warm and sunny day here in Southern California, and we are going to start the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee. The weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, it's good to see you, and I see you are in a very luxurious <laughs> hotel suite there in uh, oh, yeah. lovely Nashville, Tennessee. I am in Nashville. I'm here for a few days uh, for meetings and I got a show tonight, but the show must go on. The show must go on. And here we are going on, going on, going on. And so many things as always to talk about. As always, it was a great week for the newsletter. So many great stories. And uh, we're going to touch on them. And and we have so many. And this is going to be a a pretty new one for us. We've got three audio drops in one episode. Yeah. And I think we have another three next week. There's just... Well, there's been a lot of conversations lately, and it's so great to get it right from the horse's mouth. So, you know, this week we're going to hear from Rob Abelo um, from WhereMusicsGoing.com and the newsletter. Really great stuff. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear newsletter. from we're going to hear from Chris Nelson, uh, the uh, president of Tenth Street Entertainment. Um, we're also going to hear from Chris Aron, who's the CEO of the MLC. Um, but before we sort of jump in, I wanted to. Uh, tell our audience that we're recording a special episode uh, next week with uh, our friend uh, Will Page. Um, he wrote that book. Uh, it's now called Pivot. Uh, great, great book. Um, the hardback originally was called Tarzan Economics. Uh, really great book. Um, but he's got a new report out um, about the music business. And the headline this week was, It's Official, Music's $40 Billion Business, Global Value of Music Copyright Ramps Up 14% to 44 $41.5 billion in 2022 with publishers clawing back share. That's easy for you to say. But we're going to dig deep into that report um, with Will this week, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Oh, I can hardly wait to it. And, of course, Will is a true economist, and when you talk to him about this stuff, it's just mind-blowing how he digs deep and gets all this information. And it will also cover a lot about why it's important, why it's important to, to for these numbers, not only because they're great numbers, but there's some other sort of policy reasons why these are important to know and, and yeah. talk about. So yeah. looking forward to that. He's he's so damn entertaining. Yeah, no, he's, he's just such a great uh, conversation. Can't wait for you guys to hear this. Um, he's also got a really great podcast that I listen to every single episode yeah. called Bubble Trouble. Um, so if, if you, uh, get a chance, uh, check that out. So, um, before we jump into the stories, you and I love Glenn Peoples Ledger, uh, email Glenn Peoples over at Billboard. And we this do. week 
it was really super interesting and it led to a story on Billboard Pro and the highlight, I'm sorry, the uh, headline was seven highlights from music companies' quarterly earnings reports. And uh, I thought that was really interesting that he had like these seven takeaways because he's the guy that's on those earnings calls and reports back so you and I know what's really going on in the business. Oh, totally. And and another person with a great sense of humor, by the way, Glenn. So it is uh, it's fun to read. And again, another just, you know, he digs so deep and his insights are so valuable for me because I don't have that knowledge base that he has. And it's it's really I really appreciate all the hard work he does over at Billboard yeah. and, and uh, in the ledger. So this one is, of course, is seven highlights from music companies, quarterly earnings reports. And it's sort of subtitled in quotation marks, merchants of garbage, live music spending, rosy outlooks and more. Yeah. And that merchants <laughs> of garbage, you probably saw that quote from uh, Universal CEO Lucian Grange. You know, the, the first did. one of his seven, the headline is. Universal Music Group struck out against "quote unquote" merchants of garbage uh, during uh, UMG's October 26th earnings call. Their chairman and CEO Lucian Grange, he got a lot of attention when he bemoaned the "quote unquote" merchants of garbage. That's creators of low-value functional music, such as generic mood music and nature sounds. You know that want to be on an equal royalty terms with streaming platforms. And, uh, you know, comparing that to, you know, UMG artists like Taylor Swift, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know, he doesn't feel like they are have the same value. Right. So Lucian Grange's memorial turn of phrase came in defense of UMG's artist centric royalty scheme, which we've been talking about. And that was crafted in partnership with the French music streaming service Deezer. He said, quote, sorry, I can't really think of another word for content that no one really actually wants to listen to. <laughs> it was great. Another one was Spotify's price increase gave a much needed uplift to subscription revenues. The price for an individual Spotify subscription in the U.S. was $9.99 from 2011 to July of this year. The price hike to $10.99 is roughly 50 markets away. I'm sorry, the price hike to $10.99 is roughly 50 markets, in roughly 50 markets, may have arrived later than its competitors, but it came just when Spotify needed a boost. Spotify's premium average revenue per user dropped 6% year over year, 1% at, at constant currency, mainly because the company had a larger share of family plans compared to its prior year, CFO Paul Vogel said during the July 25 earnings call. Mm -hmm. So we saw this coming, and it's about time. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It took as long as it did. And I can't think of another thing that is the same price, that was the same price from 2011 to 2023. No, Nothing. and that's a good point. And um, Will Page goes into that in his report that we're going to be talking to him about and, and things about adjusting for inflation as well, which even pull it down even further. Uh, the third one, no company lowered guidance and some have raised guidance, right? That's sort of their projection. So Sony Music raised guidance for revenue and adjusted operating income before depreciation and amortization by 5% and 4% respectively. So Reservoir Media raised their guidance for fiscal 2024 and adjusted EBITDA by 10%. So I thought that was an interesting point. No company lowered their guidance. Exactly. Uh, the next one is consumers aren't slowing their spending on live music. I am living this one myself. He's, in August, concerns arose that a resumption of student loan payments paused to help people struggling during the pandemic would take a bite out of pocketbooks and cause music fans to pull back on the record amounts they were spending on live entertainment. But three months later, there is no indication that consumers are slowing down. According to Live Nation, we're seeing no sign of weakness, said President and CEO Joe Burke, Joe Burke told, noting that Ticketmaster's October sales in North America were up double digits year over year. And I know I'm seeing a lot of shows and I'm paying through the nose. Yeah, well, you know, it's it. supply and demand, right? And there's a really great story in your morning coffee this week all about the record year that Ticketmaster and Live Nation are having. So check that out. Uh, the next one was SM Entertainment has big plans for its new publishing subsidiary, Creation Music Rights. And, you know, the K-pop company has aggressively been recruiting global writers and plans to have 80 of them under their contract this year. So watch, uh, watch SM Entertainment this year. 
Indeed, the next one is radio advertising continues to struggle, but the clouds may be starting to part. iHeartMedia's October revenues were down 8%, and the company expects its fourth quarter revenue, excluding political revenue, to be down in the mid-single-digit percent year-over-year. Uh, the fourth quarter will be iHeartMedia's strongest quarter of the year, but will be weaker than we originally anticipated due to some dampening of advertising demand, which coincided with the uncertainty caused by the recent geopolitical events, said uh, Rob Pittman. He's the CEO over there during the earnings call. That said, iHeart's me- digital media business is sort of in recovery mode, he said, and the company is seeing the pieces falling into place for radio's recovery as most advertisers expect to be back in the growth mode and spending to support that in 2024. Yeah, that was a little surprising. Um, And uh, the last one was a little surprising, given the news that we've been reading lately, is that it says the market for catalog acquisitions isn't slowing down. Reservoir Media uh, CEO said that catalog prices aren't contracting aren't contracting, meaning getting smaller, despite higher interest rates. He said, we're still seeing a lot of demand for assets and continued infusion of new capital within the competitive set. And he said that during his earnings calls. So super interesting about radio, super interesting that, you know, we've been hearing about all of these catalog acquisitions that Mm -hmm. we thought maybe were slowing down. But according to Glenn and his great coverage from uh, the Ledger and Billboard, not really the case. No, sir. Hey, let's thank our sponsors, Jay, before we keep uh, get Please. rolling a little further, because, man, we certainly appreciate all of their hard work and help to put the show on. Yeah, first of all, the Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, uh, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform. It makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website, everything is built right in. Uh, host Hosting and custom domain name, Dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, very important, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, MORNINGCOFFEE, and that'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And big thanks to our newest sponsor, Myco. Discover Myco, your ultimate music companion. Enjoy weekly Zoom sessions and professional assistance with music bios, press releases, and pitches. Access comprehensive databases connecting you with key industry influencers at Spotify, TikTok, music blogs, radio, and more. Stay ahead of the game with regular industry updates, receive immediate support via WhatsApp, and thrive within our vibrant community of passionate musicians. Go to www.themico.com for more information. Yeah, and a late-breaking thing on the Myco is there's a, uh, a special offer for uh, Your Morning Coffee uh, listeners and readers. So go to the newsletter, Your Morning Coffee, for that uh, promo code. We're also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton. Thank you, Bruce. With help from Alana Bonilla, Hypebot, and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform, Bands in Town. Bands in Town. Over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Oh, yes, sir. And finally, the Music Business Association. They host an annual slate of in-person and virtual events so industry professionals like you and me across the globe can come together and discuss hot-button issues and support the growth of the entire music community. Join us uh, for the Music Biz 2024 conference, May 13th through the 16th here in Nashville at the JW Marriott, and uh, we'll see you there. I forgot to mention that I'm here in Nashville this week. 
<laughs> you see you here. <laughs> you see you right here. There, there you, you go. go. There you have Big it. Big thanks to Banzoogle, Maiko, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And every week I get to hang out with this handsome chap right here, Jay Gilbert. He's a what? music industry consultant. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music, and his own bad self. He is a digital music shaman. <laughs> Shaman. Shaman. I don't think it is. Okay. Sounds good. Or is it Shaman? I'll take it. Uh, Top ramen. It's all good. And this gentleman sitting across from me, I look forward to speaking with every week, sometimes multiple times a week, is Mike Etchart. He's a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Group. And he's the guy that I go to when I want to know what cool music documentaries are out because he's given me a bunch. I, I'm waiting to watch the Millie Vanilli one. I haven't checked it out yet, but it's supposed to be fantastic. I've talked no, to a lot of people. Let me know how it. that is. I saw the sort of the trailer for that. That looked really fun. Um, before we jump into the stories, one other quick thing is you and I were having this conversation this week about Grammy Best New Artist because it seems so weird that these artists that are nominated for Best New Artist, some of them have been around for like a decade. And we're like, well, <laughs> wait a second. What, what's going on here? And so there was a really cool piece um, that we found and we looked at from uh, Billboard. It was the headline Mm -hmm. was just how new are the Grammys best new artist nominees? And that was written by Chris Egertson. And you and I sort of uh, looked that uh, article over. Let's let's talk about that just for a second, just to give the audience kind of wrap their head around what is a new artist. Yeah, so this year's crop announced along with the rest of the Grammy nominees uh, last Friday includes several acts with notably deep discographies. Now, again, these are allegedly or supposed or are going to be in the best new artist category. Yeah. One is Jelly Roll, so he's one of 2023's biggest breakthroughs. Started releasing a long string of albums though more than a decade ago. We've also got Victoria Monet. She put out her debut EP way back in 2015. Wow. And then a band I really like, actually, The War and Treaty, mm. prior to releasing this year's Lover's Game, Americana duo The War and Treaty already had three albums under their belt and years of experience outside the band before that. So not exactly <laughs> new artists? Well, this is far from a new phenomenon, right? Chance the Rapper, who won Best New Artist in 2017, had released three albums prior to winning that Grammy. Lizzo had also put out three full-length albums, including her breakthrough smash, Because I Love You, prior to her 2020 nomination in that category. And, and for Best New Artist, the 2011 winner, Esperanza Spalding, had, had also a trio of albums prior to taking home the award. So here's what the recording academy I can't even say it. Here's what the recording academy has to say about all, all this. They say our best new artist category probably has the most complicated set of rules of any of our categories. <laughs> Essentially, a in quotation marks new artist is defined uh, for the Grammy process as any performing artist or established performing group who releases during the eligibility year the recording that first establishes the public identity of that artist or established group as a performer. Uh, and you know how dogs kind of look at you with kind of a crooked yeah, head? Yeah. I'm kind of looking at that statement with kind of a crooked head. Well, I'm like, it's, huh? you know, it's the one that, that blows up and puts them on the map, right? To be eligible yeah. for that category, best new artist, the artist, duo, or group must have released a minimum of five tracks or one album, eligible artists must have achieved, here's what we were talking about, that breakthrough into the public Mm -hmm. consciousness and impacted the musical landscape during that year's eligibility period. So sort of clears it up a little bit, but it is a little, (laughs) it's a little wonky. Yeah, that's that's an understatement. But it is what it is, Jay. We are not going to cha- we are not going to change that today or this week. So uh, no, we move on to our first. This is from our friend Rob Avalo. Uh, Ten predictions for music's future, and you got to sit down with him. I did. We we talked about this uh, piece. In, well, we posted it in your morning coffee. Um, Rob Abelow has a really great website called Where Music's Going. He's got a great newsletter. Go sign up for it. But I did get a chance to talk to him about his 10 predictions 
for music's future. Let's let it roll. Rob, it's good to see you. How you doing? Great. Good to see you as well. So we were talking about your 10 predictions for music's future. Um, and Mike and I really enjoyed that. Can you walk us through those? I would love to. I'll just kind of read them off for you here. Um, so these are, you know, 10 predictions that I put together for the next five years of music. Um, you know, kind of boldness may vary on these, you know, so, some I think are definitive and, and some directionally so. Uh, so number one, I think we'll see 1 billion music creators. Um, as AI tools help blur the lines between artist and consumer, uh, most will create for an audience of one or in fun, easy, social, gamified experiences. And co-creation and interactivity are going to become the leading driver of music's new growth. Uh, number two, 100 million songs will be released to DSPs each year. And 99% of those will be heard by no one. Uh, you know, we are on pace for 40.4 million this year. And if you uh, kind of extend the 20% uh, annual growth rate for the next five years that we've seen over the last five, we'll hit 100.5 million in 2028. That doesn't, and I think we're going to see, you know, AI expanding this. The real thing that's going to restrict it is if music streamers and with pressure from big labels become increasingly pay to play. Um, so I think this is the third prediction. You know, this will happen as they look to drive revenue and realize that creators are willing to spend far more money than consumers ever will for mass consumption. Uh, they'll charge for things like playlist pitching, annual track hosting, boost to reach your own audience. And initial versions of this are already happening. Um, you know, we're seeing this with Spotify turning into a, a two-sided marketplace and how in their uh, investor decks, they're talking about marketplace growth and that that's what that refers to. Um, and the music industry is, is mostly happy to, to pay to cut in line for a sliver of people's attention. Um, I think this the, the experience at these platforms will deteriorate, deteriorate and discerning fans will find other options. Uh, this is known as something called platform and shitification. Uh, great article in Wired to go check out about that. Uh, number four, uh, Taylor Swift is the last of music's global megastars. Uh, we'll never see an artist gain this level of multi-generational awareness again. Artists will sell out arenas, sell tons of albums, billions of streams, and have tons of fans, perhaps even more than Taylor. But most people will not be aware of who they are, at least on the same level. Uh, number five, I call the great artists unbundling and maybe rebundling. We'll see a major shift in the artist fan experience away from mega platforms that bundle all artists together as content to artist-centric platforms that bundle each artist's music, art, engagement, membership, and commerce into one. Most of the passive consumption will still happen on the mega platforms, but, and number six, mega platforms and majors will end up missing out on this quote unquote super fan opportunity. They're built for mass consumption and feed the lowest common denominator. But fandom is much more bespoke and it happens at the artist level, not really at the platform level. And entirely new tools that center the artist fan and fan to fan relationships will win. Number seven, is an AI artist plays Coachella's main stage. So this is like an AI designed artist with a fully synthetic, oh, quote unquote, original voice. It'll be backed by an unknown anonymous creator who will play the main stage at Coachella. Think kind of like the, the 2028 version of Daft Punk. Uh, number eight is what I'm calling the marvelization of music. Major catalog owners churn out music's version of sequels using AI and their deep catalogs to exploit timeless material for continued profit. So they'll generate new songs, create derivatives, and bring dead artists back to life in a myriad of ways. Um, anything to extend blue chip material and IP. Catalog and its reincarnations will take increasing priority over new music for the biggest players. It's a hell of a lot easier to keep exploiting known material through these means than to try to break new artists and new music. Uh, number nine, the rise of collectives. 
Uh, new forms of collectives will partially fill the role of labels and curators, offering collaboration and resource sharing while challenging traditional industry hierarchies. They'll become the artists' launch pads. Uh, the superpower they will hold and that few others have is authentic, engaged audiences. I mean, means of distribution that are meaningful be, are harder and harder to come by. And I think this can potentially be a place that happens. Number 10 is a new artist sells out arenas without releasing any music on traditional platforms, solely through grassroots, community-centric growth, bypassing conventional platforms entirely. Instead of competing against the noise, they'll create their own space outside of it. And community building becomes the most important skill for artists, which I was going to say is, is really how it's always been, but just even more so and with new tools. I think these predictions are spot on. And Mike and I talk about them uh, quite a bit. It's going to be fun to kind of watch things evolve and change and sort of check in with you to see how some of these things are uh, evolving. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat on the money on at least <laughs> most of these, so I don't look, look like a fool. But I think directionally, it kind of gives a sense of, of, of where we're moving. Yeah. Rob, tell people where they can find uh, more about you, about where music's going, your blog and newsletter. Yeah, so wheremusicsgoing.com or on Twitter, Abelo Rob, or if they want to find me on LinkedIn, I do a lot of daily stuff in those places. And uh, they can subscribe and follow along the newsletters uh, about once a week. Love your work, Rob. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jay. It's fun to have him tell the story, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I agree cool. with pretty much everything he said. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Really interesting to have him check in and 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 do this for us. And again, this is really fun because we've got we have three audio drops on this uh, for this week's episode, which has been a blast. Yeah, very and, unusual. Uh, very unusual, but very cool. Kind of nice to hear from everyone and see what they have to say. The next one is from Chris Nilsson at 10th Street Entertainment. The evolving roles and responsibilities of artist management today. And boy, oh boy, I mean, you could what what a Things have changed so dramatically oh, yeah. in the last, call it two decades, you know, as as we've moved to a streaming business. Um, yeah. And you have so many artists that are jumping in and out of different relationships with labels and doing self-releasing and so many things to contemplate. It is just being an artist manager has always been hard, but now it is mind numbingly hard. Yeah. And it's evolving like crazy. And you'll remember back in the day, there were a handful of managers that started they were like rebels. They started doing things differently and started taking yeah. on the roles and responsibilities of labels in some ways and distribution in some ways. People like Howard Kaufman and Irving Azoff, and Jonathan Daniel, and just, I mean, some of these groundbreaking managers. So as you know, I'm, I'm part of a artist management collective and we get together and we share best practices. And it's really, it's something that came out of uh, the pandemic lockdown and to this day has really been just a joy uh, for me to you know, work with some of these people. But a while back, I wrote a piece for Hypebot about the evolving roles of labels versus distribution because they're blurring. You know, distribution's doing things that labels used to do, like advances and sync licensing and all this stuff. Anyway, to set this up, um, I had a chance to talk to um, the president of 10th Street Entertainment. You know them for managing bands like Motley Crue. And this is Chris Nilsson, who is super smart. And he's just, I'm so thankful that he takes the time to sort of walk through the evolving roles and responsibilities of artist management today. So let's listen in on that conversation. Chris, good to see you again. How are you? Great to see you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about, well, kicking off with sort of your your strategy when it comes to artist management, because artist management has really evolved. You know, there were pioneers like Howard Kaufman and Irving Azoff who really started doing more than just maybe touring and started really getting involved in brand partnerships and all other parts of an artist's business. Talk about what you've built at 10 Street and how roles and responsibilities for artist management have evolved. Sure. Um, well, uh, I, you know, I think if you look at the the, the evolution of, of artist management, I mean, you know, it used to be that an artist was, 
you know, in the bus all day and there was no internet, uh, there were no cell phones, you know, maybe when you got to the, you know, the gas station, uh, you could stop and make a phone call or, you know, at the hotel, you could get a fax, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think in a lot of ways, the manager was a, was a proxy uh, for the artist, um, you know, because the manager would sit in an office all day um, and, you know, have access to the phone and the fax machine and, you know, all of that. So I think, um, it, you know, back then there there was a there was a lot of that. Um, you know, I think there are some some great examples uh, and certainly the managers that I really respect. Um, you know, I think like the Shep Gordon uh, School of Management, which is really about, you know, how do I create the most value for my artist? Um, how do I come up with creative ideas and creative strategies and plans that the artist may not come up with themselves? So it's really, you know, and just to go back to Shep, you know, I've, I've, I've always considered him you know, almost as much of an artist as as a manager. Um, you know, there are things that that his clients uh, did and were able to do that that drastically affected their careers um, because of things that that he came up with. Um, so I think you know our approach is really you know how do how do we how can we be great creative partners. You know, how can every day we think about what's the value that we can create and provide that the that the artist um, may not be thinking about themselves? Um, and and then how do we go and execute that so that, you know, as a result of the partnership between the artist and the manager, they are achieving a lot more than they would on their own. Um, you know, I, I think um, the days of the proxy uh, or the, the, the manager as proxy for the artist, I think, are, are you know, are over. I, I certainly know a few managers like that that are still, you know, you have to go through me and all they do is really, you know, try and beat up labels and they never come up with any ideas themselves. And, um, you know, more power to them if that works for them. But it's certainly not how I like to think. And it's certainly not, um, you know, at the end of the day, the artist has to pay us. And, you know, I want them to pay us for things that they can't do themselves. Um, so that's really like how how we try and think here. Yeah, it sounds like your approach is just a lot more collaborative. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, you know, I also look at like a great manager, like a great, you know, like a great sports coach. And, you know, I know sports analogies are a little tired and cliche, but I suppose people use them because they work. Um, exactly. But, you know, you, you want to be able to help the artist find things in themselves that maybe they didn't even know that they could do. Um, yeah. You know, you want to push them. You want to give them the resources so they can be the best that they can be, um, you know, when they're in periods of, of self-doubt or you know, those kinds of things you want to, you know, you want to get them through that so that they can, you know, win the game. Uh, I say that kind of rolling my eyes, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's true. Uh, the, the yeah. cliche is the cliche works because it's true. Yeah, it works. There's a great report out this week by Dan Runcie over at Trapital. And one of the sections focuses on monetization and sort of super serving the super fan and mm -hmm. as you know, for most artists, streaming revenue is only one small slice of that revenue pie. How do you approach all of the various revenue streams today when you're advising your artists? Well, uh, I it's it's a big question. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of the super fan and how, how we're set up, I mean, we have a whole department uh, that uh, it is is engaged solely in creating the relationship between the band and the individual fan. Um, so what does that mean? Um, that means uh, getting them as much, you know, exclusive content 
you know, as as we can, you know, working with the artist to try and carve out things that we can do for those super fans, um, running subscription programs. But also, you know, a big part of that is the back end data analysis. Um, so we're looking at really profiling, you know, each individual fan, where they live, what their purchasing habits are, you know, to very granular things like, you know, uh, if they buy 20 t-shirts out of the year, you know, what are the colors that they're buying? What do the designs look like? You know, we're really trying to get, you know, very granular, like not in a creepy Cambridge Analytica way, but, you know, in a way where we can, you know, cut out all of the noise um, and get them really only what they want. And I think that that's, um, that's really crucial today because there's so much competition. Um, there's so much music, you know, you, you pull up uh, Spotify or Apple, whichever platform you use and you're fed, you know, a hundred different artists and it, it's, it's difficult to sift through that. So we really try and help the fan along to get them exactly what they want um so that uh you know we we can target programs and shows and and merch offerings and new music and all of that in a in a very tailored way yeah it sounds like you're focused more on real engagement and not just some vanity numbers oh absolutely and i think you know the the evolution of social media has shown us that that's absolutely crucial um you know, it used to be even like, you know, I think back in the MySpace days, you know, it was like, how many like MySpace friends can we amass? And, you know, this this is before, you know, the the the, the sort of creepy algorithms of, of today's social media platforms where, you know, if you had a million friends and you put up a message, chances are most of them would see it. Um, you know, if they're going on the, the platform, you know, today it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's pay to play and it gets harder and harder. So, you know, I think it's really, really crucial for, uh, artists to have the relationship with their fans. Um, uh, yes, on social media, it's a great point of entry, but, you know, it, if the artist is going to have a long-term career and be able to, you know, directly target their fans, you know, they have to move them off of social media and into a platform that they control. Yeah. When do you think uh, an artist is ready for representation uh, with, with a manager? Um, I, I don't think that there's one answer uh, to that. Um, I think uh, at least how we, look at it uh we just look at uh you know is is the artist in a place where what we do can really help them um you know we we don't like to just sign up a bunch of artists and wait around for you know them to to hit like i really feel strongly about us being able to to do a good job for whomever we're, we're working, um, whether it's a brand new artist or, you know, an artist that's been around for 40 years. Um, it, per, you know, just personal experience of, of, of you know, recently is, you know, we've, we've found a new artist and I mean, this kid is one of the best singers I've ever heard. Um, and very young, hasn't really put out that much content. But when you listen to him sing uh, and you listen to some of the songs that he's written, you just go, I know exactly what to do. You know, we get him with the right writers and producers and help coach him along. And, you know, I really feel like that's a there's a there's a pretty clear path, you know, as I see it. Um, so despite the fact he's really young, you know, and doesn't have uh, 2 million monthly listeners on Spotify yet, I don't really care because, you know, when I hear him sing, I just go, this kid is amazing. And uh, if we do the right things, um, then uh, we think he can make it. You know, there's other artists where, 
you know, the space may be more competitive, you know, and the kind of music that they're doing. Um, maybe there's a bit of a question about, you know, can they compete? You know, you, you might say they're not quite ready for management because, you know, they haven't necessarily figured out who they are yet. And, you know, it's tough for us to give the artist, you know, a vision. So if they don't have it themselves. So I, I just think it, it all depends on whether or not we look at a particular act and or or artist and say, is is what we do and what they do, is that going to be a good fit at this point in time? Um, so I guess the short answer is it could it could be all kinds of 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 different combinations of things that make us go, yeah, we think uh, this artist is ready for representation. Yeah, it sounds like it's a lot more complex than what cap rooms they're playing or how many streams they're getting or what their social footprint is. There's a there's a lot more that goes into it. Sure, I think you know, I think like um, you know, the narrative often likes to distill things down to really simple formulas and you know as we see in anything um you know the world is oftentimes much more complex than you know the sound bites that we try and make out of it yeah yeah chris thanks so much for joining me today i really appreciate it let's keep the uh, conversation going no thank you wow excellent Excellent information. Really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So thankful he took the time to uh, walk us through uh, all of that. So thanks again, uh, Chris. Indeed. So, Jay, uh, story number three is from Variety. What Spotify's new royalty model really means. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be talking about this for a while, I think. Well, it, there's been some confusion the last couple of weeks since it's been mm -hmm. announced. In this piece, you know, you and I love Variety. This was written by Jem Oswad, and you and I are huge uh, fans of his writing. And uh, I thought he laid it out so perfectly um, what this royalty model really means. Yes. It starts with, as news about Spotify's new payment model has torturously dribbled out... Details have been leaked through sources with little official comment from the company. It is not surprising that controversy has accompanied it. Uh, streaming royalty models are deeply complicated, and Spotify, the world's largest paid streaming service by a long measure, has borne the brunt of the world's frustration with the low royalties that most artists and especially songwriters receive from digital service providers. Right. Several articles and headlines they really seized on a major point of the new model, which rolls out next year, revealed last week in, in an article um, by Kristen uh, Graziani, president of the music distributor STEM, and everybody's been talking mm -hmm. about that, um, that tracks earning less than 1,000 streams within 12 months will not receive a royalty payment. But according to Spotify's Loud and Clear website, just 37.5 million tracks out of the more than 100 million on Spotify have surpassed over 1,000 streams, meaning that two-thirds of all the songs hosted by Spotify have not reached that payment plateau, while two-thirds of the songs on Spotify will not qualify for a payment. It, it's certainly an alarming headline. Some perspective is necessary, though. The following, following Cliff Notes version is intentionally brief, so let's let's dig into it. Yeah, so he says, first, it needs to be stressed just how little money a 1,000 streams actually generate. As noted by Graziano, a 1,000 streams in a 12-month period accounts for, wait for it, $3 in earnings what? at most. <laughs> That's <laughs> yes, crazy. $3. Far below what most distributors will bother paying out without a fee significantly more than $3. Yet... Many distributors simply hang on to that money. Thousands of artists earning $3 does add up, and it earns interest for them rather than the artist. In other words, Graziano says, this is money that isn't currently making it to artists in the first place. Indeed. <laughs> That's super interesting. The move is also aimed at lowering or eliminating the royalties earned by fraudulent streams. Again, those small payments add up. And quote-unquote functional tracks like White Noise and the much-vaunted Rain on the Rooftop environmental sounds, remember that we just talked about with Lucian Grange, mm -hmm. uh, 
Spotify's new model will also charge financial penalties to distributors and labels for uploading tracks with fraudulent activity. Yeah, interesting. In theory, the money directed away from those streams will then increase the royalty pool for musicians and songwriters. Spotify has said that the new minimum will shift tens of millions of dollars per year to the royalty pool, which some sources have estimated at $46 million. Yeah, not yeah that's significant. Uh, no, it's not. And as Graziano stresses, some critics will point out legitimate concerns that I may have missed, she wrote. Um, I hope Spotify takes those critiques seriously and makes adjustments, but some critics will make arguments purely out of self-interest. This is a line in the sand. Sorry, my, uh, my uh, screen dropped. <laughs> this is a line in the sand moment for labels and distributors. You know, we'll all have to ask ourselves if we want to make our living by enabling legitimate artists to have success in their careers or by, you know, what Lucian Grange said, merchants of garbage. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, lots of things to be uh, thinking about and talking about as the details uh, become a little bit more clear and this stuff gets happening. And it's it's going to be very interesting, Jay. Very interesting yeah. indeed. Yeah, that was that was a great piece by Jem Oswad. Thanks for clearing that up. It's, it's not as horrific as you might have read from the headlines in the last uh, couple of weeks. And our, and our last story this week... You saw the headline from uh, Business World, uh, biz Music Business Worldwide, uh, that the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, has paid out over $1.5 billion to songwriters to date. And I just thought that was such a massive milestone. And you and I are friends with Chris Aron, the CEO of the MLC. We have a great deal of respect for the work that they're doing over there. So I thought it'd be great to hear it from the horse's mouth because they're doing a lot of innovations over there and they're bringing in a lot of revenue for the songwriters. So let's listen in to my conversation with Chris Arend, the CEO of the MLC. Chris, thanks for joining me. Good to see you again. Hey, Jay. Great to be here. So the MLC held its third annual membership meeting recently. Uh, you announced a significant milestone. The MLC has now distributed over $1.5 billion, with a B, dollars in royalties to date. Congratulations. Uh, what were some of the other highlights coming out of that meeting? Uh, well, thanks, Jay, for, um, for recognizing that. And yeah, big number for sure. And, uh, and the amounts keep growing. Um, that was the product of completing 31 monthly royalty distributions, uh, all on time or early. So um, we certainly feel good about having gotten that monthly distribution process up and running and, um, and having been able to deliver it in such a dependable, consistent way. Um, we also have now more than 32,000 members. I think we're approaching 33,000 members. So wow. your number of, of rights holders connected to us has grown pretty significantly. Uh, the public database has more than 33 million works, or I should say data for more than 33 million works. So that's another big number. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then, of course, our support team. We, we continue to uh, try to make service a part of everything we do. That team has uh, responded to more than 65,000 contacts. And uh, I like to say they are far more responsive than the cable company. So <laughs> again, we're, we're there to, to work with members one-on-one -on -one and really provide them the support and the assistance that they need to ensure the MLC can be successful for them. Wow, congratulations on that. I wanted to ask you about uh, the, the black box. Can you elaborate on how the MLC has sort of effectively addressed the black box by empowering members with various tools like, like this new matching tool? Yeah, um, well, we, um, we like to say now that we have fully illuminated the black box in the area of digital mechanicals for the first time in history. And that is a significant development. So what that means is that any member of ours um, can see and search uh, all of the unmatched sound recording data that we have, whether it be for the historical periods that predated um, our launch or the blanket periods. And um, once they find uh, a set of uses, a group of uses that they think relate to one of their songs, um, they can then propose a match between those uses and a song that they've registered with us. So 
by doing that, everyone can now see what isn't connecting and everyone can play a part in trying to make those connections. But of course, most importantly, you as a rights holder can do that for your songs. So um, while we're certainly working on that unmatched every month, um, we have now opened it up so that every rights holder can work on it for themselves. And, um, and it's that illumination combined with the ability to action it that um, has effectively changed um, the entire paradigm there. It's, it's no longer a black box. It's a visible box. Um, and there's certainly a lot in there. Um, the challenges that led to the creation of the black box are, are not gone. Um, we still see data issues with the uh, upstream process. And then of course, um, data issues within ours that we are trying to improve, but, but that visibility is, is key. And it's a huge part of uh, the transparency that the MMA intended to deliver. Yeah, congratulations on uh, the milestone, the innovations, continued success. Uh, I'll be checking in with you a little bit later. Thanks again, Chris. Appreciate it, Jake. Take care. Yep. Excellent. You know, it's it is hard work, and this is this is the this is kind of the trench warfare of the music business, yeah. which is finding money. You yeah. know, finding dollars and sometimes even pennies elsewhere, and and how to bring that back to the folks that are actually making the doing the work. And That's right. And again, you and I talk about this a lot, right? Uh, about how you know the songwriters are the foundation of this business, yes. and yet they're the least paid and probably the most screwed over over the years. And we have people like, you know, Chris Castle, who's out there fighting the good fight, making sure that these uh, frozen rates are unfrozen. And we've got people mm -hmm. like uh, like Chris Arend and his team who are making sure that these people are, you ready for it, properly remunerated. <laughs> A word that still I know, it just right does not me. sound right, does it? No, I want okay. that M to be an N, but I know, whatever. I know, Hey. We got to wrap up the show, though, Jay. Uh, if you enjoy the show, by the way, please tell one friend. Just Jay one. and I both would appreciate it greatly. We want to thank Banzoogle, Maiko, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. But most importantly, thank you, for the listener. We uh, do not take that for granted, and we certainly appreciate it. So on that note, uh, your friends Jay and I will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.